Poland. Uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot. No. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. And all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 30th episode of Polcast. In this episode, we will tell you about Poles as treasure hunters, as shown in a BBC film. A field marshal of the Ottoman army and the governor of Aleppo. What does he have to do with Poland? What happens when your hunch that you're not who everybody thought you were is finally confirmed? This is the next part of the new series on our podcast, Conversations with Non-Poles who are married to Poles or have Polish partners. Is there anything different in dating a Polish person? Uh, yes. They're very, very proud to be Polish. I've learned so much about Polish history. Um, his family. They're very family-oriented. The food is very different and I love it. It's very good. He's very stubborn. I can tell his parents are pretty stubborn too. Once you get comfortable with them, you definitely feel like you'll be a part of their family forever. So it takes a while to get comfortable with them. Do you agree? You can share your opinions and comments on our website, mypolcast.com. Under Stories, you will find a page devoted to this series called Non-Poles About Poles. Leave your comments there. We will be quoting them on Polcast from time to time. Thanks to a recent BBC film, we learned that there is an area in Poland which is particularly prone to treasure hunting. Local inhabitants do search for treasures and often find some. The one that motivated the British filmmakers to make this film was pretty special. A train full of gold, which allegedly had been hidden by the Nazis in the mountains in the area known as Lower Silesia. The BBC film Hunting the Nazi Gold Train was directed by Wanda Kościa. She is a London-based, Polish-born director, producer and award-winning documentary filmmaker who has produced dozens of high-end television series and single documentaries for the BBC, UK Channel 4 and Discovery on a range of topics related to recent history. We reach Wanda Kościa in London, England. Among many films that you've made, the recent one is uh, quite a story. The title of the film is Hunting the Nazi Gold Train, and really that's what it is. It's about hunting it, um, looking for something that, as we all know now, isn't there, but could well have been. The story broke last summer, in 2015, when two guys in Walbrzych came forward saying that they're laying a claim to 10% of, you know, the find, because they believed they'd found a gold train. And a lot of people got very excited immediately. 
I happened to be in Poland at the time and I was very sceptical. And in fact, somebody called me that would I want to be involved and I thought, well, this isn't really real. Meanwhile, um, I think CNN made a, made a film and there was a lot of, a lot of noise around it. So in the, in the face of all this excitement, a producer from the UK, from Pulse Films, who uh, make music and feature, but also have branched out into television, got excited, went to Poland, saw, pretty convinced there's something there, and came back and convinced the BBC to commission the film. Also convinced um, the Smithsonian Institute, uh, the Smithsonian Channel, commissioned the film. So we had a double commission, because we made two versions. The Smithsonian version will be going out in January. I, I didn't come into the project till... June, I literally got a phone call on Friday, was interviewed on the Monday and was working by the Wednesday. Half the filming had been done, but the project was dragging along. People couldn't make up their minds because by then it was sort of, you know, there was a lot of scepticism that maybe there wasn't anything there because by December, some professors from Krakow had done a survey and said there isn't anything there. However, the two treasure hunters, Piotr Koper and Andreas Richter, were absolutely convinced there was something there and that what they their geo radar readings were telling them that there was a train loaded with something hidden at kilometer 65 on the main line from Valbrzych to Wrocław. Okay, so we were committed to, to filming and the thesis of the film is, all right, there's a belief that the train is there. There's a local legend that the Nazis hid stuff and there are very good reasons to substantiate that, because Valbrzych lies in the Sudete, in the Al Mountains and next door to it, and this was not Poland before the war, it was Lower Silesia, and it was a little tucked away corner of the Third Reich, which was, for a large part of the war, was a safe haven, because it was far away from Allied bombers, it wasn't anywhere near the front. Wrocław was one of the most Nazi cities, the Nazis got the biggest vote in Wrocław, Breslau as it was then. The other reason why it's so mysterious is that the bulk of the German population was deported after the war, and a new population moved in, mainly Poles from the east, but not only. There was also some Greeks and some, you know, a wide variety of people. And so they arrived in a place that they didn't really have a history with, but knew something had been going on. So it was a wonderful breeding ground for, for legends and mysteries. The other reason why these legends sort of functioned was that you had the freezer of communism, obviously the Stalinist period, when people weren't allowed to inquire too much. And the area was occupied by the Soviets for two years after the war. So all these layers of mystery, on top of the fact that it was known that the Nazis had been tumbling in the area. Valbrzych is a, is a very ancient mining area. In the last stages of the war, they constructed these huge tunnels under the Al Mountains using slave labor from a nearby concentration camp. Grossrosen, in great secrecy, uh, basically uh, sort of during the Allied bombing raids, the Germans were putting their factories underground and there were other factories that the Allies found after the war. The other aspect in the area was, was this amazing castle. It's the third biggest castle in Poland. Książ. yeah. Altogether, the Lower Silesia is full of, it's like the Loire Valley of, of Poland, full of fantastic castles. There is evidence that this castle was being transformed into a headquarters for Hitler. 
And then there's the whole story of, of the siege of Breslau. The Hitler had ordered Breslau to be a, a fortress town and to hold up the Soviets, and they did from mid-February till the end of the war. They held out longer than Berlin, in fact, and the place was devastated. There was a lot of treasure in the area because during the bombing raid, treasures from the rest of Germany were sent to, to Breslau. And also Breslau was on the route from the east where once the Soviets started advancing, people were pulling out, you know, the Nazis were taking all their ill-gotten loot. And Breslau was bang on that trajectory into the heartland. The whole of Lower Silesia is full of treasure hunters. And people do find stuff. You know, people find stuff in who move into German homes and they find full ceilings or find stuff under the floorboards, buried in the garden. You know, be it personal family jewels or even food or silk dresses and jam jars and this sort of thing functions and why now because under communism there wasn't the freedom to to do this sort of thing poles were always looking for for things and were always finding things but something as big as a train so your film eventually was about the quest yeah the, the the film is about the quest and obviously there was a hope that you know we would be filming Uh, the greatest archaeological discovery. However, you know, realistically, we knew that that's not what we were going to do. But there was very good reason to be researching, to, to be understanding why did people believe that there's something could be there. I've spoken to people who saw the film. It had quite a good reception here. It showed an area that is not very well known, but deserves to be well known. Lower Silesia is very beautiful and has a very rich history. And As I said, it's there's so many good reasons to believe that something could be there. And, you know, even even as they didn't discover something, one of our interviewees tells us, well, I always said they were digging in the wrong place. You know, <laughs> it should be half a kilometer down the line. And then somebody came forward um, and spoke to the press. And I said, I always saw it not at kilometer 65, but at kilometer 63 or 61. I'd see no evidence at kilometer 61. However, the Risa tunnels are a real source of mystery. And what the Nazis were doing there at the last stages of the war remains a mystery. And what the Soviets found remains a mystery. So the mystery remains. To learn more about the film Hunting the Nazi Gold Train, its director Vanda Koscha and her other films, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We hear the name of the Syrian town of Aleppo a lot in the news. This is where our next story begins. In 1929, in Aleppo, which was then a normally functioning town in Syria. In the year 1929, the body of General Murad Pasha was exhumed in Aleppo and his remains were transported to Budapest and then to the Vavel Castle in Krakow. As a Muslim, he could not be buried in a Catholic cemetery, So he was laid to rest in a park in the town of Tarnov, his birthplace. His funeral turned into a patriotic demonstration. Why are we talking about General Murat Pasha on our podcast? Murat Pasha, field marshal of the Ottoman army, governor of Aleppo, was a Pole, Yusef Bem, a hero of several nations. 
He lived in Poland, which had been erased from the map of Europe since 1796, having been partitioned by three great powers, Russia, Prussia and Austria. Poles did all they could to regain independence. They organized a number of bloody and unsuccessful uprisings, as well as fought in foreign armies hoping to form Polish units which could fight for Poland's freedom. After the fall of the November 1830 uprising, in which Józef Bem served as an artillery commander, he tried to form Polish army units in Belgium, Egypt and Portugal. In October 1848, he led the defense of Vienna, swayed by a revolution. After the surrender, he made his way to Hungary. In 1848 and 1849, he liberated Austria-occupied Transylvania and entered Bukovina. He was loved and admired by Hungarians for his heroism in their battles against Austrians. The grateful Hungarians called him the Knight of Freedom or Daddy Bem. It is said that they decorated him with a star extracted from the crown of the Hungary's first king, Saint Stephen I, which was then replaced in the crown with an emblem reading Josef Bem. Aided by Russia, Austria put down the Hungarian Revolution and the Poles fighting in the battle were forced to seek shelter in Turkey. Josef Bem soon funded a factory for the Turkish army and he had great plans to create a modern school of artillery. Bem converted to Islam to get access to military service, as always hoping that it could help the cause of Poland's independence. In appreciation for his merits, he was made the general of the Turkish army. In 1850, Bem, the commander of the town of Aleppo, besieged by Bedouins, contracted malaria. His last words were, Poland, Poland, I won't save you anymore. Yusuf Bem was an engineer and also wrote books about the history of Poland in three languages, German, Polish and French. And the Hungarian revolution against the Soviets in 1956 began on October 23rd with a protest at the foot of the Bem statue in Budapest. Sometimes it takes years to discover who you really are. Sometimes this moment is preceded by years of suspicions, by an almost irrational hunch that is impossible to explain. How does it change your life? And what if you find out that your story is not unique? Kat Kareszka is a highly accomplished Polish-born, U.S.-based writer, documentary filmmaker, photographer, and researcher in Jewish history, culture, and identity. Her own story turned out to be like that of many others, and exploring this phenomenon has become her professional and personal passion. We reach Kat Kareszka in Wrocław, Poland. Everything you do, and you do so many things that it's even hard to enumerate, half of them, I guess, is related to something that happened in your life which changed your life entirely. Uh, which is obviously the moment when you found out that you were not who you thought you were. It really all started with uh, not really finding out, but really the feeling, which was so completely irrational. And I had so little to support this irrational premonition hunch that I was, in fact, Jewish. Uh, and all of this started when I was about 15 and a half. I first actually started discovering that I had Jewish roots on my dad's side, uh, and then finally, almost you know, twenty years later, I 
finally got uh, the confirmation that I that I already didn't think I was going to get, that I was right about my hunch that I was Jewish on my mom's side. Can I ask why it took so long between the first and the second? Well, I mean, it, b- between my hunch that I was Jewish, which was a hunch that I was, that I was Jewish on my mom's side, it took uh, a little over 18 years for the secret in my family to finally be told to me that my mother was Jewish, that my grandmother was Jewish, that my great-grandmother was Jewish. Meanwhile, I was discovering that my dad had all these Jewish roots on, again, on both sides of, of his family, though, you know, scattered and unclear. But yeah, there were, you know, deathbed confessions and there were just simply, you know, these moments when somebody says, oh yeah, this person was Jewish. You know, how come you never mentioned this before? Well, you never asked. And then finally, my dad's father told him on his deathbed that he was Jewish. And then it turned out that my mother was the one that heard the secret from her grandmother uh, when, when, when she was dying, uh, that we were Jewish on that side of the family. And my mother had promised uh, that she would keep the secret. And then finally, she decided to uh, essentially break that promise. My great-grandmother mentioned that you know she, my, mo- my mom would have to hold the, the secret from everybody for as long as her mother was alive. But what happened is my my mother lived through almost two decades of of my living a Jewish life, working on Jewish projects almost exclusively for two decades, you know, devoting my education and, and, and professional career to Jewish themes and, you know, eventually writing a book about Jewish identity. And here I was. Uh, a couple of weeks before the launch of the Polish version of of, the, of my book, uh, Return of the Jew, and my mother finally sat me down and she said, you know, that uh, when her grandmother, my great grandmother, was dying, she told her, "We were Jewish, but you can't tell anybody, at least for as long as your mother is alive." And so the reason my mom finally told me was because this was only months after my grandmother did pass away. How did that change your life? Well, it's interesting because if you had asked me just before that happened, if you actually now found the proof that you really wanted to have throughout these years, would it change anything? I would tell you no, absolutely not. It would change nothing. I felt comfortable in who I was. But the truth is that when... I heard those words from my mother. It changed everything. It was actually a huge relief. It essentially made me feel a lot less crazy. Because you felt crazy. Uh, yeah, and I think and I think I'd reached a point where I sort of accepted the madness. So so when I eventually learned that I was right about the hunch. Well, it makes me think I'm a witch, maybe. (laughs) Or it makes me think maybe there is a very strong telepathic ability in my family. Or perhaps uh, I am communicating with the dead in ways that I never tried. I don't know. Or, you know, a lot of rabbis will tell you it's the Pintaliyid or it's the Jewish spark. And it's, I think, because I don't have an answer, I became fascinated with this story only when I realized that my story is not unique. Where was the relief coming from? Okay, now I have the right to say that I'm Jewish or everything I say has more weight because I'm Jewish? 
I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are people who take me more seriously because of that. But the relief was very much between me and me. It was my own very personal relief. I ju- it just made me feel more comfortable with who I was, which, you know, is surprising because I thought I was comfortable. But I guess I didn't know that I could be even more comfortable in my Jewish identity. And, and also, if that hadn't happened, I would not be traveling around the world telling my story to strangers. I only got the courage to tell the story when I when when this became the conclusion of the story. You say that this is something that you've now come across so many times. It's almost like it's uh, it's happening in front of our eyes everywhere in Poland. How common is it? My experience has been this. I since since my book came out, Return of the Jew, I would somehow run into people who would tell me that they have a similar story. Now, you have to understand, in my book, I only mention the story very briefly and without really the conclusion, because the, the, this is the irony. The book was finished and it came out before I actually learned the secret. So my story was incomplete. My book isn't about me. It's about 50 other people, 44 of them, Uh, discovered they had Jewish roots in their teens or their 20s. Only six mentioned that they always knew. And so this is about a group of young Polish Jews who tell their stories of, of embracing Jewish identities. The, the reason this is so important to me and the reason I'm so passionate about this project is because I don't know how to make sense of my story. What I have is an ability, you know, today, so many years later, to ask questions about these kinds of stories. And that's what I essentially want to do. And I'm very much more interested uh, in the questions than I am in, in the answers, and the an- answers in the sense of, you know, of, of finding uh, an explanation uh, or of rationalizing this, of finding some kind of scientific or spiritual theory that would explain this phenomenon. The phenomenon being that people have hunches which are confirmed? Yeah. The Meshugene effect. This is a word in Yiddish which means crazy. That's how you called it. That's what I called it. It's a little bit of a tribute or really more of a wink to my uh, great-grandmother who used to call me Meshugene when I was very little. I knew it meant crazy and I knew it was a term of endearment coming from her. Um, I was the only person she called that in the family. I didn't know that it was a Yiddish word. I learned that many years later. How do you feel about Poland? Never in my life did being Jewish conflict with my being Polish. Right. I'm Polish. That's the identity that I can take for granted. And I always did take it for granted. It was the Jewishness that I had to struggle for. You know, I had to explain. I had to sort of pursue. I had to learn anew from scratch. Polishness is my upbringing, my first language. I'm speaking to you from my hometown where everything began. I'm in Wrocław. There's a lot of discussion about Polish-Jewish relationships, especially when you live in, in North America. You know, and I've lived in America for, for almost nine years, and, and I lived in Israel before that for five years. I feel most Jewish in Poland because I'm a Polish Jew. And it's, very, it's a very specific kind of Jewishness for me. And it's, it's the kind of Jewishness that I cherish and that I cultivate uh, with, a, with a big emphasis on the Polish. 
Right. So, so for example, in that play, we keep coming back. Well, you're you're a bridge, or you are a、um, a guide. You are somebody that translates that Poland to Jews who came from Canada to for the very first time.、Uh, is that is that the role that you're often put in? Yeah, and I think it's a role that I often put myself in. I just recently worked with another Canadian filmmaker on a film that she's making. It was supposed to have a small Polish chapter in it, and now it's going to have a major Polish chapter in it, <laughs> because this is what happens often to, you know, Jews who know they have roots in Poland but have never been.、Uh, the moment they go, there's often a transformation that happens, and and it's and it's beautiful and it's fascinating. I've been now involved in, in a lot of projects like these, and I do see it. A little bit, you know, as my mission, and I hate that word. In the U.S. and in well, in North America, to write and to make work about、uh, disconnect and the possibility of of a reconnection to the Polish Jewish heritage. More than seventy percent of North American Jews can trace their roots to Greater Poland. This is a huge number, and there's also a huge number among those people who don't realize this, or. Grew up with a notion of Poland that had nothing positive about it, and no idea to ever visit Poland or to look into Poland or to look into Jewish Poland today. It's almost becoming a movement right now that people are finding out, you know, also thanks to to projects like We Keep Coming Back, about this possibility, a Jewish identity adventure in Poland that a lot of people can have and that a lot of people do have when they travel to Poland today. And discover that、uh, there's this vast Polish-Jewish heritage that was severed by the Holocaust, but it hasn't died. And there are all these various opportunities and possibilities to reconnect with it, and it's happening more and more. And I am very pleased to be somewhat involved in that. And I don't think I'm going anywhere in terms of that. I think there's a lot more that will that will continue to happen. Kat Kareshka will be talking about her amazing life journey during the Holocaust Education Week in Toronto in early November, which will also feature the acclaimed documentary film Karski and the Lords of Humanity, to which she wrote the screenplay. You can find a lot more about her and the events during the Holocaust Education Week at our website, mypolcast.com. Talked about jazz playing an important role in Poland's fight with the Soviet-imposed communism. Interestingly, it was not only jazz, but also American country music imported from the U.S., which to Poles was a symbol of freedom. Poles listened to American country music and also formed their own groups and organized festivals, which are still alive. One of them was and still is Picnic Country, an international country music festival held annually since 1983 in Mrągowo, in Poland. The three-day music festival at this lakeside resort features American and Polish country western music performers. Both the singers and the audience wear cowboy hats and boots and checkered shirts. With attendance reaching 15,000. This is the largest and oldest country music festival in Eastern Europe. The star of the last picking country was Rosanne Cash, daughter of Johnny Cash. Poland's country music movement before and after the fall of the Iron Curtain inspired Poles to demand democracy and freedom for their country, Poland.
You've been listening to the 30th episode of Polcast. Polkas is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We are always curious about your reactions, comments and suggestions, also ideas for new stories. Please share them on our website, mypolcast.com. And we leave you with example of Polish country music. I hope you like it. Thank you for listening to Polcast. Nie budzę cię, bo jeszcze noc wstaję i robię sam śniadanie. Podglądam jeszcze na twój sen Wychodzę cicho i zamykam drzwi Przejadę pewnie dwieście mil Zanim ty o siódmej wstaniesz I znajdziesz moją kartkę i słowa Będę w domu za dwa dni Kółkiem siadam, łączam gaz, 20 ton, wytaczam znów na szosę. Przede mną jazdy cały dzień, a tobie coś miłego niech się śni. W tym małym radiu szukam fal, speakera z dobrze znanym głosem. Stary Willie Nelson znowu śpiewa mi parę słów, parę nóg, a całe serce chłonie. Takie proste rymy, a wokół staje łza. Ten stary Willie znów. Właśnie o mnie I tylko nie wiem skąd Mój los tak dobrze zna Na lunch jadałem własny głód Spaliny popijałem Coca-Colą Przewiozłem chyba z milion ton, a szosę lepiej znam niż własny dom. I nie wiem, czy wytrzymałbym te wszystkie kraksy i patrole. Bez radia i tych słów, co o nas dwojgu są. Parę słów, parę nóg. Serce chłonie 
takie proste rymy A wokół staje łza Ten stary Willy znów Śpiewa właśnie o mnie I tylko nie wiem skąd Mój los tak dobrze zna Parę słów, parę nóg, a całe serce chłonie. Takie proste rymy, a wokół staje łza. Ten stary Willy znów śpiewa właśnie o mnie. Tylko nie wiem skąd Mój los tak dobrze znam